This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 6. As we celebrate six years of the show, we are exploring a very important theme, publication. What does publication mean for you as a writer? What are the choices available? And how does that impact both you and your book? We'll be talking with multiple writers on their publication experience this season, helping you get closer to publication as well. My guest this week is Melissa Fu. Melissa grew up in northern New Mexico and now lives near Cambridge, UK. With academic backgrounds in physics and English, she has worked in education as a teacher, curriculum developer, and consultant. Melissa was the regional winner of the Words and Women 2016 Prose Competition and was a 2017 apprentice with the London-based Word Factory. Her work appears in several publications, including The Lonely Crowd, International Literature Showcase, Bear Fiction, Wasafiri Online, and The Willow Herb Review. In 2018-2019, Melissa was the David T.K. Wong Fellow at the University of East Anglia. Peach Blossom Spring is her first novel out very, very soon. I'm delighted to have Melissa on with us because she has long been a friend and supporter of the podcast. And there's nothing I love more than celebrating someone who has been in contact during the whole process of getting a book to the point where you want to publish and then sharing it and finding a home for it. So to, Melissa is our debut novelist who went the traditional publishing route. And her story will take us through the process of what happens after the book is sold and the changes in work that, that occurs at that point. This was such a rewarding and delicious conversation. I know you'll enjoy it too, as well as her book. So I'm thrilled to introduce Melissa Fu. Hey, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. Well, hi, Caroline. Thrilled to be here. It is, this is, in the last little while, it has been such a joy to start to welcome people on the show who have been friends of the show for a long time. You were one of the audience members at the very, the only live episode we've been able to do, which was such a treat. And it's just wonderful to see people from when we, the book was an idea and moving forward to now right on the eve of publication day. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of amazing to just... Uh... Yeah, you've got, uh, the Secret Library podcast has always been there. <laughs> so, yeah, and you've you've been a, you've just been a force and such a support, and it's meant so much to have the connection with you. And you've introduced us to wonderful guests, and so it's it's just wonderful to see your book out there and to be able to talk to someone who feels a little bit more like an insider. You know, in many ways, we bring guests on. 
And it's easy, I think, for listeners, and sometimes it's easy for me to think, okay, these are these people that are in that other world of it, but but you're one who has been part of the whole process. And so congratulations. It's very exciting to see this book ready to come out. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's really lovely to see. Can you talk a little bit about a part of the process that we haven't really explored yet this season, which is, can you give us this sort of quick version of how you settled on the agent you went with and finding the publishing house that you ended, well, the two publishing houses really, but under Hachette that you ended up with, you know, small question to start. Yeah, well... (laughs) Every story's got to start somewhere, right? So finding my agent and then how we ended up with uh, Wildfire and Little Brown. Um, the agent story, I like to tell it. It's In some ways, it's not uh, that helpful of a story, but maybe it's a very hopeful story. I wasn't looking for an agent at the time that my agent found me, but um, I, I had been writing and had been doing a lot of short form work and publishing online and in magazines. And I think visibility is big. Getting little things, little poems, little 100 word stories, longer pieces. And I had a piece that was about 1500 words called um, Mixed Blessings that was shortlisted in a competition with uh, Wasafiri, which is wonderful. Out there, if you're listening, enter the Wasafiri writing competition, it's amazing, it's it's wonderful. They've found so many people like me. <laughs> but anyway, this piece was shortlisted um, for non, non-fiction, I think, it's not, life writing, it was life writing. And um, as part of the shortlisting, you are, they put the piece on their website. And my piece was there and um, got, and somebody read it, sent me an email out of the blue, um, March, 2018, I'll never forget, I woke up a Saturday morning and there was this email saying uh, the title, the subject was your writing. And I opened it up and it said, hello, I found your piece on the Wasafiri website, liked it, fell into a rabbit hole looking up other pieces of yours that I found online. Do you have an agent and are you working on anything long form? And it was signed Claire Alexander. And um, I go, who's Claire Alexander? So I I looked up and discovered that she is a legend in the agency world. (laughs) And I wrote back immediately saying, no, I don't have an agent. And yes, I'm working on these two projects. I had a couple things in mind. So we went back and forth and um, eventually I went down and met her and and she was a person who I signed with. And she's been just, she's phenomenal. She's a perfect agent for me in what, you know, she's, she can challenge me, she supports me, um, she suffers no fools, she's, she's, she's really wonderful. I think the hopeful bit about this is, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, she's just so lucky, you know, the agent turned up in her, her inbox, and she did, but um, I was out there anyway, I was publishing stuff, and, and I think you shouldn't be afraid of, of, um, the possibility of, of, of finding or maybe aspiring after high agents. Like, had I been left to my own devices, I might not had 
the faith or the nerve to submit something to Claire. And yet she found me and it was great. So I think if you're doing the traditional pitch and looking for agents, shoot high, you never, never know. And also I think um, just being visible, you never know who's looking. And I think that that, that counts for a lot. Um, so uh, I worked on that piece. So that was 2018. We didn't submit my manuscript until 2020. So I didn't have a full manuscript at that point. I had the idea and she said, oh, this is really interesting. I'll work on it with you. So I worked with her through the development of the, what we eventually sold. And then she sent it out beginning of 2020, February. So I'm very close. Oh to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, high hopes. And um, about two weeks later, she called and she said, oh, we have, are you sitting down? You know, it's that, that sort of dream phone call. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, we have what's called a preempt. And, and um, so there was an offer. She said, this is a joint offer from the US and UK publishers. The UK is wildfire. The US is um, Little Brown. And they would like to buy the manuscript. You need to decide over the weekend. Um, so it was a Friday afternoon, and so, ah. so we set up a phone call on the Monday. I said, okay, okay, this sounds great. You know, she told me all the different terms. And preempt means that um, if we went with them, she would agree to pull it from any, any other publishers who were considering it. I think she had sent it out to, I can't remember, 20 or 30. She showed me the list, I, I forget, but a lot. Um, and a lot of it had already said no, I think, to be fair. Um, so I spoke on the Monday with the person who was my editor at the time named Kate Stevenson. And it was sort of, we said, well, we'll provisionally we will accept based on the conversation. And I had a really wonderful conversation with Kate. Um, she, I felt like she really got the book. She also knew, I knew it wasn't perfect when we set it out. And she had some ideas on how to extend and change it and what, how to develop it. Um, then I think later that week, I think I said, let's go with it. Or, or maybe there was, I know there was then another call with the US editor who's named Helen O'Hare. And maybe after speaking with both of them, I think we might've officially accepted. It was sort of in principle, yes, in principle. Um, I would say that the general feedback that Claire had from the publishing houses that said no, was actually the same feedback than the, from the publishing houses that said yes. It's just that um, Kate and Helen were willing and happy to work with it. And they, they, saw the, they saw the strengths, they saw the weaknesses, and they said, let's develop it. And I think my impression from Claire was the, um, the people who said we're gonna pass said they saw the strengths, they saw the same weaknesses, they said, mm, something we want something that's more ready to go so it you know i'm so glad and then there was a lot of work <laughs> okay so let's i have i have a couple of questions and then i really want to talk about the work that happened so you this is because this is not the narrative that we normally hear and i think it's wonderful to hear possibilities so to get an agent when the book wasn't completely finished it was in process and so I'm interested in how did your agent help you 
in developing the manuscript because this is not this is not what we normally hear. It's like, it has to be perfect. And then maybe you'll be allowed to show it to someone. So I'm curious about the process you all had together. Yeah, so so what I had, and um, this was a tip from one of your previous guests, um, Paul McVeigh. Yes. <laughs> he said, you need to get your, your book down to a sentence. And it is, this is a book about character X who has goal Y and is blocked by Z. So, you know, mine was a book about Red Shoe who wants to, now I've forgotten how, what my exact sentence was. <laughs> See, but it's okay. It still worked out. <laughs> yeah, but I did. I, that's when I sent to Claire. I had that, I had that sentence. Um, I think it was once, once explores whether a life of abundance can um, result from a childhood of uh, displacement or something. So I had the goal and the obstacle and the character in one sentence. So that's what I gave to Claire. And I had, I also had a synopsis at that point because I, and I, actually that was a great thing to write the synopsis before the book. I had applied for um, a fellowship where you needed a synopsis. And I thought, right, if this 10 pound fee makes me write a synopsis, then I will have effectively one, I, you know, as I see it. So the question I said to myself, if it's a book, what does it look like? And so that I, I gave Claire those two things and I had about 2,500 words. Um, so just the beginning. My synopsis had three parts. And so she, she read the three parts and she said, well, you know, you could write the first part, send it to me. We could talk about it, write the second. So we kind of went back and forth. I mean, she's she she was an editor for an amazing editor for 25 or so years. So she um, really knows the business in and out. Um, so her role, although her role was never to say, it was always very much a listening and asking me just the right questions. So it wasn't it wasn't terribly hands-on saying, uh, this this should be in present tense or, you know, it was, it was, it was global. Um, a lot of talk about the characters as, as it developed. And I think them becoming more and more real, you know? So, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's like you say, not the story that you hear, but um, I've heard of a few other people who have worked with their agents to develop. So I think, I just, I love this option. I love, I love whenever we challenge a narrative of this is how it works because maybe that's what we hear, but there's always other stories out there. So this is a wonderful one to hear. Yeah. And I think it's that being open. And I think that visibility, I know, I know a lot of writers who are amazing writers who are a little bit precious and I understand why they don't want their stuff to be out there in the world too early. Um, but if I didn't have all those little, little clues on the East, on the, on the internet that Claire could find that day, because an agent can tell, you know, they know what's rough writing and they know what's, they know, they know what's there and, and they can, they can see that development. And so I think, and they know when a story has legs and if, you know, if you have too many adverbs, that's all right. That can be fixed later. But if the story doesn't have legs, they can tell that from a synopsis, right? Yep. So. And so then after 
you found your, your joint publishers and then you got into it, you said there was a lot of work. So I'm interested in, okay, so you've got a finished manuscript, you've got a publisher, and then what happens next? Ah, you pull your hair out. You, you, you get the first, <laughs> the first letters are so nice. It, it's, they're, they're the offers and they're like, oh, this is beautiful writing and, and this, people are going to love this. And we love the story and we love the characters. So then you sign, you sign the contract and um, they say, all right, now you're going to get your editorial letters. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, I think I had four three huge structural edits each time, like a 14 page single spaced editorial letter. Like this character is really weak. We don't understand the motivation here. We don't believe this. And you just think, why did you buy the book if you hate it so much? <laughs> but um, I mean, they were, and they were very, I mean, they were lovely and they know what they're doing, but they, they, you know, they, they were very clear at the beginning. They said, if it seems like we're being nitpicky, we are because we, we believe in the book, but. And so, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. So I kind of, I mean, pretty much chopped out, uh, chopped out the final third, changed a lot of characters, although it was 70 years. I think I shrunk the timeline down in the end. It was 70 years. I think it was longer. And, um, that first rewrite was really hard. Um, yeah, it felt like a, a complete rewrite. So there how were, long was it after you, so you sign, you get the lovely letter, you have the warm, fuzzy feeling. And so how long did you have before the 14 pages single space show up and you got to start working? Yeah, so I think, so we signed in March, uh, early March. Well, we, we agreed, I think it was March 13th or something. We were going to meet April 2nd, but as everybody knows, the world stopped. <laughs> that way. And then I think it was maybe we were going to meet and then we were going to have the, and have our publishing lunch. And then we, but we didn't. And I think I got the notes maybe about a month later. And um, so I, I worked on it from April I think up through most of the summer, April, May, June, July, I think around August, about four, yeah, May, June, July, early August. So between four and five months, I sent back uh, an next draft that I knew it was weird because I knew that it was in some ways worse. I had addressed, I had addressed all the issues they raised, but it was more words. It was clunkier. It felt heavy. It felt I didn't like it so much anymore, but I was like, but I've done everything you've asked me to do. So then they came back and they're like, great. Now, and they were, they came back too quickly. <laughs> I was oh like, no. I see it <laughs> so you're so like, they, I need a nap. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it was, again, we met on, we, each time we met on Zoom for about an hour talking and then they'd send the letter and they were brilliant. So that Helen and, Kate, it was clear that they had met and talked before. So they were coming from the same direction. So I feel very lucky. I think some, I've heard of some writers with the experience where they get caught between, you know, well, the UK editor says this, the American editor says this, editor says this, and what do I do? But, but these two were, they were on the same page by the time they got to me. So there was a second one that I got to them November second structural edit and it felt a little bit better um wasn't 
there were still some big issues. I had, you know, written some new chapters that we just threw out and written new, more new chapters. Um, I remember that I turned in the second structural edit the day, the weekend that we got our puppy. So, oh boy. <laughs> or, or maybe just after we got him, he was supposed to come a week later. I was like, no, he can't come because I have to finish my edits. And then that one, the turnaround was, they got back to me, I was November. They got back to me a little bit before Christmas, maybe uh, early December. And they said, if you can get this in, in the new year. So then I did a third one, January. So we're now into 2021. 2021. Got it. it was a, when we're getting close, we're getting close, says Helen, the U.S. editor, was, who's like so enthusiastic and also doesn't let me, you know, won't, won't miss a thing. Um, <laughs> so after those three, I think there was a day, I remember maybe late January, early February, so about a year ago now, when I sent them and I was just like, I think this is it. And I went on this big, long walk out the fields because I, I think this is it. And then. Helen kept back to me. She said, you've done it. You've done it. We've just got one more round. And you were like, what? <laughs> so there was a fourth. That one was more minor. But in the end, I think there were four structural edits, each getting a little bit less. And then there was a, a line edit and then a copy edit and then countless other things. But those four big ones were, that, that first one was the hardest. I just thought. What have I gotten myself into? I've broken, you get to the point where you feel like, I've broken the manuscript we sold that was good enough to say they wanted it, but I can't fix it to be the one that they think it's gonna be. And you just like, oh. But um, they, were, they were great and yeah, they were very well matched. And I would say that in the middle, actually Kate Stevenson went on maternity leave and so I got another editor who is now my current UK editor and she's called Alec Gordon. And actually that was great because she came to the project with fresh eyes after we had all been looking at it over a year. And she had some insights that maybe neither or yeah, that none of the three of us could see anymore because we're just, ah. <laughs> so, so movement editors isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. So. So this is a lot because, you know, I think a lot of us want to believe we know maybe on some level that like, once you've sold the book, it's all easy. You know, it's not necessarily easy street, but it's like, that's the end of the process, but clearly that's not always the case. So how did you stay motivated and engaged with it during this period of time? Well, there was a pandemic going on, so it was that an escape. Yeah. <laughs> it was an escape. And I think that, um, I don't know, there was a, a lot of room in the story for me to explore more, that, that they, things that they saw. So I had, I had, maybe I don't know if I mentioned this, I had my non-negotiables. There were things I knew I wasn't going to change no matter what anyone said. And I knew that from probably from the, when I first started to think about this as a possible book. Um, and Claire, it turned out, never asked me to change them. And my editors never 
never asked me to change this, but those were like um, points, like drop points on a map or, or anchor points that I, I knew I would, I would touch those. But the way I got from them, from one point to the next, I wasn't so convinced it had to be this one particular way. So I think for me, that year, the book got, got bigger in my head, the world got bigger, uh, the world of the book. And I could think about the characters like, okay, I know they've got to get from this town uh, to uh, another one where they're gonna find a boat. And originally, maybe I just had them going through the night on, 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 on donkey carts or something. But then I thought, well, maybe it's harder. And, and maybe they meet these people. Or maybe here's a, here's a chance to really think about the relationship between these two women characters. So the more real the characters became in my imagination, the easier it became to um, kind of move in that world fluidly. It was, it was like I was telling my husband, it's like, you know, if, I don't know why I had this episodes from Seinfeld analogy, but <laughs> you know, you know, if, it, if an episode from Seinfeld, if they're going to write another episode, you know, there will be a point where Kramer slides in the room or, or whatever, and you don't have to invent him again. You kind of know what he's going to do. And a little bit like that with my characters. So it was, it was more fun in those rewrites once I, you know, resigned myself. But I never thought it was perfect in the first place, but I was like, I knew what Longway might do, or I could say, what would Longway do? And then put them in different situations. And it, that became quite, quite fun. So on these super long walks during the lockdown, I would be having characters, you know, talking in my head, working out conversations and stuff. Um, I think I had room in the story for other people's input and then also room in the story for the characters to become as real as I could possibly make them. So I didn't get bored or um, too disheartened. <laughs> I think the other thing about this particular story and the period of time that it covers, which is huge, is that even in the middle of a pandemic, if I were writing about these characters in this situation, I would have a very hard time feeling sorry for myself or feeling like I was dealing with the most difficult thing out there, particularly in the early stages of the book when Maylene is, is, you know, transporting her child with complete uncertainty through China, there's bombing, there's all kinds of things happening and no one can know what's coming next. Did you find that helpful as a frame of reference as you were working on this when you were working on it? Yeah, I think that that perspective was really like, you know, we have a house, <laughs> we can go outside, we're not worried about what, you know, every time we look up in the sky. Um, yeah, I think that it, it's always helpful to um, re not only recognize what you have, but um, recognize what other people have. Like, while, it, you know, it's fictional, it was based on what real people lived through, you know, and they survived. So, you know, I can, I can survive waiting in line to go into the store for shopping 45 minutes. That's not a big deal really. So. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about that, that, that it is drawn, you know, that this, it's a, it's a novel, but there is reference to true stories. And I'm, 
I'm interested in that process and how that happened for you, because I think it started with the peach trees, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So um, my, my dad was always trying to grow fruit trees when I was growing up and they were, they never worked out. They were always a disaster. And then after he retired and moved away from um, a pretty stressful job in a, in a slightly claustrophobic town, um, he just relaxed as a person. And then he just threw some peach pits in the backyard, not even thinking about it. And some trees grew. And I thought this was the most amazing thing because, you know, the, his trees finally grew. So I wrote this short story and people were like, okay, trees grew. <laughs> what, what's, what's the big deal? He said, no, but these trees with this man, it's an amazing thing. And so to, I needed to kind of do justice to some of the skeptics who read the story and were like, okay. They're like, no, 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 you need to be impressed. So, <laughs> <laughs> so somehow in my mind, I knew I, they had to know who he was. And, that, and then, but I didn't actually know too much about my father's life. He only told us a little bit, just once. I wrote, I wrote down notes from that day. And I'm really glad I did, because later in his life, he didn't remember ever telling us. But those notes were a little bit of a, a clue for me and how maybe to start. So my characters in the book, they move around in China, fleeing first the Japanese and the Sino-Japanese War, or what we often call World War II in the West. Um, and then they are continually on the move after that from an ongoing Chinese civil war, which was the nationalists uh, against the communists, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and, and Mao Zedong's communists. Um, it turns out that my family were among those who were with Chiang Kai-shek and eventually left China for Taiwan. So um, I knew this sort of outline of a story, but not the personal stories. And I didn't really want to ask him again. You know, he had his trees. He was happy. I didn't want to make him sad and ask him to tell his stories again. So I read as much as I could about other families and um, other people who had followed that same trajectory. And that's where a lot, a lot of this, what happens in the story beyond the geographic points where they are. Um, although whenever, whenever I did have anecdotes from my dad, fun ones that I could put in, I, I did. A lot of them then got taken out again. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah. Yeah, I'd say pretty much everything that happens happened to somebody some somewhere although of course not all to the same people as i as i presented so but it is plausible the plausibility was important to me yeah it felt it felt very believable reading this story even as it was extraordinary and that most people nowadays wouldn't necessarily find themselves in that situation. Although some can in today's world, it, it isn't unheard of, just in a yeah. different ge geographical area. Yeah, yeah, I think there is a lot, lot to that. Um, in fact, you know, I just thought of this, um, when I was in college, I was friendly with, uh, or I had a friend, she was German, and um, I was visiting her in Germany after spending a year abroad in Scotland. You can cut this off. <laughs> but um, I, 
she was working with Mennonites and we went to Croatia and we were um, at a Croatian refugee camp. Well, the, the Bosnians were the refugees then. So this was 1992, 1993. And she had been there working and then I went and met her in Germany. She said, do you want to go to France or do you want to go to uh, Croatia and see my Bosnian friends? So we went to, I said, no, I want to, I want to go meet your friends. So I spent a little time. We were there a couple of weeks. And so, although again, that's what many 20 years, 30 years now ago, I don't know. It, it does feel real. I mean, that was, I mean, it was real, but these again were families who had been displaced because of the Croatian, Serbo-Croatian um, and Bosnian wars. I mean, different language, different politi politics, different situation, but again, still those impacts on families and it's always somewhere there are refugees. Um, yeah. And I think this is this is the thing too is in telling stories like this and in one I think one of the things that I loved about reading your book is that it seems that many of us writing myself included have written books more recently that take place over a short period of time sort of chronologically in in the story even if there is reference to much larger time but we got to experience multiple generations of this family in your book and see sort of playing out as we went the impact of the experiences as they were carried and how they were carried from one generation to the next. And I, I found that so meaningful to read because we know this happens, but I think in some ways fiction does a better job of allowing you to be in contact with that experience more directly yeah i think that was one of the things that the intergenerational bit and why three generations there are so many books where there are three generations but i think it the story is too big for one person to to carry um you know the first generation sort of experiences it, the second one survives it, <laughs> and the third has enough distance to say, what happened here? And, and start to, yeah. And then those impacts, it, they get, the echoes get, well, they're echoes, right? So the impacts are less severe for say, the characters of the third generation, the, the daughter Lily. But it, the reason that the way she is, the reason she is the way she is uh, because of the previous generations or, and so, that's kind of what I wanted to show. Um, so the reader can understand, even if she can't, you know, at least the reader gets to see this. Definitely. What do you, what do you hope? What's your, what's your wish for this book as it comes out into the world and it gets into many more hands than it's been in up to this point? Ooh. So I have this um, this theory about why I was able to write the book. Like, because before writing this, I had never written anything longer than, you know, a few thousand words. And I have a theory that a book or a story has its readers out in the world. And um, the only reason I was able to write this is that there are people out there who need to read it. And so it's going to, it's going to travel as far or as short as it needs to, 
whatever distance until it's found its readers. And then, and so that's, and then that's the fate of that book. So, so I hope it finds its readers because wherever they are, and I don't, I don't need to know them. I mean, they will have their own relationship with the book, but, but because they were out there, that's why this book came into existence. And now it's, it's on its way looking for them, or it will be on its way in, in a few weeks. I love that idea. I think that's true because if we think back over to the books that we've read, and I've said this before, but whatever, I'm saying it again, that if I think back over my life and I wonder if you've had the same experience, there are particular books where if I had not read them at that time or not read them at all, I wouldn't be the same person or I wouldn't have the same view of life. And whenever I'm struggling with my book or I'm feeling stuck, I think to myself, what if those writers said, you know what? I just can't, I can't, nope, we're done. This is not working. What would I have missed out on? And I, yeah, I just always come back to that. Because you never know once it leaves, once it leaves your hands and, you know, there's like the obstacle course of getting it published and then the obstacle course of reviewers or whatever they want to, you know, hopefully, hopefully you'll get some nice reviews or, or they'll say what they say, but it's finding the people who you, you never, the writer's never going to hear from them, but that's not the point, right? It's, you know, you think of the books that changed you and yeah, so I, Maybe that would be that would be a great hope for the book that it maybe changes something for someone. <laughs> yeah, like the scroll that they never met. There's this beautiful scroll in the book, which you will learn about as you read it, but that carries all of these stories and that Maylin, one of the main characters, carries with her for a long time. And they never meet the artist. Yeah, but that doesn't um, matter. It it was so significant to her and her son. You know, I think that's an idea that um, I first came up with that the, the idea of not knowing the artist and but love, loving the art was the very first time that I was ever in Europe as a like a, a nineteen year old or something, having grown up in the states where everything seemed new by comparison. I thought, oh, a castle, amazing, you know, cathedral. And I would look at these, you know, these structures, especially the cathedrals, and think all of all the handwork that went into um, making the stained glass windows or carving the screens. And those artisans never knew what the whole thing would look like. And they never knew what people would see, but they still loved it and did it anyway. And I think the scroll is like that, or so many art and arts and artifacts, they just live beyond the people who make them and then beyond the people who enjoy them. Hopefully, you know, they don't get destroyed. Hopefully they continue to be treasured. So. Yeah. Much like the books themselves. Yeah. <laughs> we hope. We hope. Well, Melissa, it's been such a joy to speak to you about this book. I know we could go on forever, but I, I hope that everyone leaves this conversation feeling inspired and hopeful about your book, wherever you are, finding its readers, wherever they are. Oh, thank you, Caroline. And it's been a delight to speak with you and just a, a little bit about the book's journey in a different way. So I appreciated that um, opportunity very much.